This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from Jewish Insider, Voices Against Hamas Growing Louder as War in Gaza Continues, by Ruth Marks Eglosh. Perhaps it was the recent chaotic images of Hamas terrorists using sticks to beat back desperate civilians at a Gaza hospital, or the short clips circulating of armed terrorists trying to make off with vital aid meant for starving children that first prompted some residents of Gaza to speak out against their leaders. And maybe it was the videos from the past week posted on social media of stripped and blindfolded Hamas terrorists throwing down their arms, or the massive Israeli flag flapping over a flattened central square in a Gaza city that emboldened those voices. Whatever the reasons, after 68 days of a war that has changed and even destroyed the lives of many of Gaza's 2.3 million residents, a growing number of ordinary citizens in the Palestinian enclave, analysts suggest, are beginning to show their anger against Hamas, the brutal regime that has dominated their world for the past 16 years, and which on October 7th unleashed an unforgiving war in their territory. It's a silent and gradual revolution that is spreading and brewing among displaced and suffering civilians in Gaza who hold Hamas, the nihilistic criminal enterprise that has governed Gaza since 2007, responsible for their annihilation, suffering, misery, and displacement, Ahmad Fouad Al-Khatib, an American political analyst originally from Gaza, told Jewish Insider in a recent interview. Al-Khatib, who has been posting daily video clips on X, formerly Twitter, added, I see dozens of videos, messages, comments, outbursts, and outcries daily by Gazans who are detesting Hamas, challenging its propaganda, condemning the consequences of its actions. He said many are accusing the militant Islamist group of hiding themselves underground, while civilians are being obliterated above ground. While the dissenting voices are coming from various sectors of Gazan society, many are ordinary civilians struggling to stay alive as Hamas refuses to release 135 hostages, including women, children, and the elderly, and continues to fight back against the unwavering advancement of Israeli troops. In one clip from December 6th, an elderly Palestinian woman angrily tells a journalist from the Qatari-owned Al Jazeera network that the people in Gaza are starving. When the reporter answers that it's because no aid is coming in, the woman responds boldly that it is all going to the tunnels underground. Hamas takes everything to their homes. In another video shared on X, a woman who says her husband was killed in the war cries saying she can't find food for her children. She blames Hamas for dragging Gaza's people into this war with Israel. The people of Gaza are dying of hunger and on the brink of a genuine humanitarian catastrophe, she says, in desperation. But the criticism of Hamas is not only coming from ordinary people. This week, the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, released 14-minute video of Yosef Mahmoud Hamad al-Mansi, a former Hamas minister, telling interrogators, they destroyed us. We must get rid of them. 
Almansi, who was arrested by Israel December 5th, was referring to Hamas and its current leader, Yahya Sinwar, the man who is believed to have masterminded the October 7th attack. These anti-Hamas voices have always been there, Al-Khatib said, describing how people tried to speak up against the Iranian-backed group since it violently took control over the coastal enclave in 2007. These voices were visible on social media, in local newspapers, and at times on the streets in the form of large protests against miserable living conditions and no promising prospects. Al-Khatib, who now lives on the west coast, said that over the years there have been attempts to protest against Hamas and its prohibiting, prohibiting policies, with unprecedented demonstrations taking place over the dire economic situation just last summer. Hamas's response to the protests last July and August was similar to previous times, he added. They quickly cracked down on the protesters, beating and jailing many, and unleashing its members and thugs to stage counter-protests. Due to such tactics, Al-Khatib explained, many of those who oppose Hamas and its policies have stayed silent out of fear for their safety or concerns for their social, professional, and humanitarian prospects. Given Hamas's dominance over society, resources, politics, and other aspects of life in Gaza, it can be challenging to be an outspoken critic of the group, she, he said. The situation is different now, however. The current war has brought unprecedented levels of suffering, death, destruction, hardships, and horrors upon the people of Gaza, said Al-Khatib. While they direct much of their anger at the IDF and the excessively violent counterattack, most are not fooled by Hamas's propaganda and directly hold the group responsible for provoking a war with Israel. He predicted that the anti-Hamas voices would continue to grow, especially as people are reaching previously unimaginable levels of desperation, such that many are no longer fearful of Hamas. Indeed, alongside the videos coming out of Gaza condemning Hamas and blaming it for their ultimate misery, have also been clips of civilians fighting back against the armed militants, particularly at places where aid and essential items are being distributed. In Israel, the pushback on the streets of Gaza is being seen as a sign that Hamas's hold over society in the enclave is cracking. Speaking at a Hanukkah candle lighting in the south with Nahal Brigade troops, IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi said this week that the military was beginning to see the collapse of Hamas's governing system in the Strip. I see the achievements every day, he said. We are seeing every day more and more terror operatives killed, more and more terror operatives wounded, and in recent days we're seeing terrorists surrendering, a sign of the disintegration of the system. Khalid Abu Tuama, a Palestinian affairs analyst, told Jewish Insider, the deeper the Israeli army pushes into the Gaza Strip, the more we are likely to see people speaking out against Hamas. We've seen it increase in the last few days, especially on social media, he said. There's a feeling that the barrier of fear has been shattered and that Hamas has been weakened as a result of the military offensive. Abu Tuama also noted that many Palestinians in Gaza have always been unhappy with, Hamas's, uh, with Hamas, particularly those who are members of rival Palestinian political factions such as Fatah and who were afraid to speak out for fear of being punished by Hamas. 
I don't believe that Hamas is in a position to crack down on those critics right now while it is still fighting Israel, he said. Another reason critics of Hamas have stayed quiet, said Abu Tawama, was because there are no foreign journalists in Gaza. Al Jazeera and other Arab media outlets have not allowed Palestinians to voice their anger with Hamas or with Qatar, one of Hamas's financial backers. He, al- he said he also felt this might be changing. I've been hearing a growing number of Palestinians who are now holding Hamas responsible for the destruction of the Gaza Strip, Abu Tuama said, adding some are questioning whether the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th was worthwhile. Next from Jewish Insider, Jewish lawmakers press White House officials to move faster in tackling campus anti-Semitism. By Mark Rod. White House officials met with Jewish lawmakers on Wednesday on Capitol Hill to discuss efforts to combat anti-Semitism in the wake of October 7th and implement the administration's national strategy. At the meeting, administration officials highlighted the increase in anti-Semitic threats while lawmakers pressed them to move more quickly on issuing regulations regarding anti-Semitism on college campuses, one lawmaker who attended said. From the White House, Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff, Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, Domestic Policy Counselor Director Neera Tanden, and Justin Oswald, an official from the White House's Office of Legislative Affairs, attended the meeting. They were joined by Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat of Nevada, and Representatives Kathy Manning, Democrat of North Carolina, Jerry Nadler, Democrat of New York, Susan Wilde, Democrat of Pennsylvania, Suzanne Bonamici, Democrat of Oregon, Greg Lanzman, Democrat of Ohio, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Democrat of Florida, Josh Gottheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, Alyssa Slotkin, Democrat of Michigan, Becca Balint, Democrat of Vermont, Seth Magaziner, Democrat of Rhode Island, Max Miller, Republican of Ohio, Kim Schreier, Democrat of Washington, Lois Frankel, Democrat of Florida, and Sarah Jacobs, Democrat of California. Manning said that lawmakers urged the administration to vastly accelerate its rulemaking process regarding campus anti-Semitism and provide better guidance to college leaders on best practices for combating anti-Semitism. The administration is expected to issue a regulation providing further guidance around the Trump-era executive order classifying anti-Semitism as a form of prohibited discrimination on campuses under the Civil Rights Act. We all expressed our concern that they're just taking too long, and the date that they predicted last year of December 2024 was totally inadequate, and they heard that loud and clear, Manning said. According to Manning, the lawmakers also pressed for the administration, particularly Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, to more publicly discuss the threats, of the, the threats the Jewish community is facing, as well as their efforts to disrupt them. Sherwood Randall told lawmakers that the threat level to the Jewish community has risen dramatically since October 7th, and that they are taking these threats very, very seriously, according to Manning. Currently, the administration has not seen signs of coordinated terror attacks targeting the Jewish community, but is worried about lone actors. The White House officials told the group that they are meeting all of the implementation deadlines for various executive agencies laid out in the anti-Semitism strategy, which was rolled out in May. The White House officials said they are working with law enforcement to secure Jewish institutions and communities 
monitoring online anti-Semitism issues, and are in regular conversation with European allies, according to Manning. They also said they are concerned about the situation on college campuses and are pursuing credible threats like those posted by a Cornell student. They also asked why the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights has been slow in clearing cases on campus anti-Semitism, which have increased in number and significantly since October 7th, Manning said. The administration officials said that the Office of Civil Rights needs additional funding from Congress so that it can hire more staff to handle the increased volume of complaints. Frankly, if my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are all of a sudden so concerned about anti-Semitism on college campuses, they shouldn't be cutting funding for the OCR out of their budget, Manning said. It's easy to pick on the three college presidents who performed so poorly in their hearings. It's a lot tougher to say we're going to increase funding to the Office of Civil Rights so that they can actually go after these investigations and go after the complaints with the urgency that they need. Republicans have argued that the office has the resources it needs to tackle anti-Semitism cases. Manning said the administration officials had also asked the lawmakers for additional funding for nonprofit security grants. Manning said she had also pressed the administration officials on whether anti-Semitism education is being included in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs for federal agency employees. Landsman said in a statement to Jewish Insider that the threat assessment provided by the administration confirms this is a crisis. Fully addressing it will take incredible leadership, really hard work, and probably many, many years. Magaziner described the meetings as productive and said he was grateful to the administration for taking this seriously. With the events at home and abroad since October 7th, we all understood the importance of redoubling efforts to combat anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and call and all forms of hate, he continued. Frankel, noting that anti-Semitism is spreading rapidly nationwide and around the world, said in a statement that the meeting had focused on the Biden administration's most recent actions to prevent and combat this rising hate. Manning said lawmakers had requested this briefing shortly after October 7th, as anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. skyrocketed. It took a while to get it all pulled together, but it was a very good, productive meeting, Manning said, and the top leaders that they had, there was an indication to me that they're taking this issue very seriously and that they want to work with Congress on this issue. And next from Jewish Insider, speaking to President Gay, Harvard Chabad Rabbi blasts schools handling of anti-Semitism by Gabby Deutsch, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Standing next to a large manure in front of Harvard's historic Widener Library, Harvard Rabbi, uh, Harvard Chabad Rabbi Hershey Zarhi delivered a blistering speech Wednesday castigating the school for a lack of leadership on anti-Semitism and bemoaning the difficulties faced by Jewish students in recent months. Zarhi spoke to a crowd of several dozen students and community members, but the most important person in the audience was Harvard President Claudine Gay. Just a day earlier, Harvard's governing board had voted to keep her as president after her disastrous handling of congressional questioning about whether calls for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's code of conduct. The email referred to you as our president. 
Sarhi said, referring to the subject line of the university-wide email sent Tuesday by the Harvard Corporation that affirmed Gay's service as president. We in the Jewish community are longing for a day that we can refer to the president and all of Harvard as ours. Days earlier, the board of the University of Pennsylvania had voted to oust President Liz McGill following her own similarly bungled response to the question about Jewish genocide. Meanwhile, a couple miles away, Massachusetts Institute of Technology had, like Harvard, decided to keep in place President Sally Kornbluth, who had also appeared at the Capitol Hill hearing about anti-Semitism. In a 15-minute address, the usually upbeat Zarki offered a sober assessment of the state of Jewish life at Harvard since October 7th. He described an atmosphere of fear for Jewish students and for his own family, who he said had been advised by Harvard's police department to obtain private security last week after Harvard Chabad hosted a screening of IDF footage from the Hamas terror attacks in Israel. We were being accused of hosting a war criminal, Zaki said, presumably referring to Israeli ambassador to the United Nations Gilad Erdan who introduced the screening last week. We are gathering in a moment when the eyes of the world are upon us. Everybody is looking at Harvard now, Zarki said. It pains me to say, sadly, that Jewish hate and anti-Semitism are thriving on this campus. I don't feel that they had the back of me and my family and our community, said Zarki, the Jackie and Omri Dahan Harvard Chabad Jewish chaplain, 26 years I gave my life to this community. I've never felt more alone. In a story that at first seemed inspiring, Zarki shared how Harvard had first allowed a menorah to be set up in Harvard Yard more than two decades ago. But quickly, this story too took a turn toward the negative when he shocked the crowd by revealing that the menorah does not remain in the yard at night. This bothers me until this very day. You know what happens to the menorah? After everyone leaves the yard, we're going to pack it up. We have to hide it somewhere, Zaki said. Harvard would not allow us to leave the menorah here overnight because there's fear that it'll be vandalized. He had never shared that fact publicly before. Think about that. We're trying to fix the world, teach the leaders of the world, Zaki continued. On our campus and the shadow of Widener Library, we in the Jewish community are instructed... We'll let you have your menorah. Make your point. Okay, pack it up. Don't leave it out overnight because there will be criminal activity here and it won't look good. Change, he said, will happen when we don't have to pack up the menorah. Throughout Zarki's speech, Gay, flanked by her husband, watched solemnly. He concluded by calling her up to help light the menorah for the seventh night of Hanukkah. It's my hope and I know I speak for everyone here that we can work together with you, Zarki said. He implored her to speak up when she sees people on campus targeting Jews. You don't walk by and say nothing. You speak. You don't remain silent. Gay walked up and lit the shamash, the candle that is used to then light the rest of the flames. At the end of the event, she posed for a picture with a group, but she did not share any public remarks. And now in a related story, we go over to JTA. Menorahs across the United States are vandalized as Jewish communities celebrate Hanukkah amid a spike in anti-Semitism by Jacob Gorbis. 
In Oakland, California, an 11-foot-tall Hanukkah menorah was broken and thrown into a lake. In New Haven, Connecticut, a Palestinian flag was planted in a publicly displayed menorah. In Juneau Beach, Florida, a menorah made of sand was destroyed. As Jewish communities around the United States celebrate Hanukkah over the past week, numerous stories of vandalism and destruction circulated online as public menorahs, many of them sponsored by local outposts of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, were targeted. Some of these, the incidents are being investigated as hate crimes. The acts of vandalism come at a time when Jewish communities are on high alert, as watchdogs say anti-Semitism has spiked around the globe since October 7th, when the Israel-Hamas war began. Many communities had planned gatherings explicitly drawing connections between the war and the Hanukkah holiday, which began December 7th and concludes Friday. In response to the uptick in anti-Semitism and fear, one Jewish father launched an online campaign encouraging non-Jews to display menorahs in their windows out of solidarity. For decades, public menorah lightings have been commonplace in many cities around the United States, especially in ceremonies led by local Chabad rabbis. The Hasidic movement organized an estimated 15,000 lightings annually in recent years, and this Hanukkah, it puts the number at more than 10% higher, an increase uh, Chabad spokesman Rabbi Moti Seligson attributed to, in part to the war in Israel and Gaza. Jews from across the spectrum of observance are celebrating Hanukkah more visibly this year than ever before, Seligson said. They feel they don't have a choice. It's in response to October 7th. Baruch Klar, who runs Menorah.net, which bills itself as the world's largest manufacturer of public display menorahs, said his company's sales have steadily increased every year, 2023 included. He noted that the company's sales to municipal and state offices, mostly in the United States, have increased 150% this year. The numbers are so high that I can't actually believe it, said Klar, a Chabad rabbi who sells menorahs as tall as 12 feet to army bases, shopping malls, sports teams, and beyond. He said he sells thousands of menorahs each year, but declined to give exact sales numbers. The prevalence and size of public, public menorahs makes them easy targets for people seeking to vandalize Jewish property or just cause mischief. And since the holiday began, several incidents of vandalism and destruction of menorahs have been reported around the country, though not, Seligson said, at an appreciably higher rate than in the past. Hanukkah came as the perfect antidote to the adversity and the darkness, Seligson said, noting that Chabad is not formally tracking vandalism incidents. In the sum total, we're seeing a lot more light. Still, the incidents of vandalism have been jarring to Jewish communities already on edge. In Oakland, Chabad had assembled a 350-pound menorah that was displayed on a walking trail at the city's Lake Merritt. Chabad hosted a candlelighting ceremony last Sunday, the fourth night of the holiday, featuring remarks from Mayor Sheng Thao. On Wednesday morning, Rabbi David Lubkovsky received text messages saying the menorah had been destroyed. He called the mayor's office and rushed to the scene, he told Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. Pieces of the menorah had been cut up and thrown across the sidewalk and into the lake. 
Anti-Semitic graffiti was scrawled onto the base, including, We're going to find you, and you're on alert. Free Palestine was written in Arabic near where the menorah had stood. Oakland police are investigating the incident as a hate crime. I felt outraged, Lepkowski told Jay. There's crime in this city, but it just hit a new level of anti-Semitism. Together with crime, it just makes you feel hopeless. On Wednesday, a large interfaith crowd gathered to light a a new menorah and show support for the local Jewish community. In New Haven, a pro-Palestinian protester climbed the city's 30-foot menorah and planted a Palestinian flag between the candles. The menorah was not damaged, but local authorities are investigating the incident, which was caught on camera. The Jewish Community Synagogue in North Palm Beach had commissioned an artist to create a menorah out of sand in Juneau Beach, which was destroyed and defaced with a swastika. After the incident, which is under investigation, the local Jewish community gathered to rededicate the menorah, which was rebuilt. Menorahs were also vandalized in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Olney, Maryland, the Chicago neighborhood of Lakeview, and suburb of Northbrook, as well as in Brooklyn, where two public menorahs were damaged. The two Brooklyn incidents are being investigated as hate crimes, according to the New York Police Department. Public menorahs have also been the scenes of dramatic incidents in Europe. In Poland, a far-right member of Parliament shocked the chamber when he used a fire extinguisher to blow out the candles of a menorah in the government building. In the Dutch town of Enshed, the mayor refused to be seen with the Netherlands' Israeli ambassador at a Hanukkah event. And a public menorah was found toppled in West Hempstead, London, on Thursday morning with a free Palestine sticker affixed to its base. Rabbi David Katz of the West Hempstead Chabad told the Jewish Chronicle of London that next year he would put up four at the same intersection. And next from JTA, GOP picks Mazi Melissa Philippe. Philippe. Mazi Melissa Philippe. Ethiopian-born Israeli-American to run to replace George Santos by Ron Campeas. Long Island Republicans selected Mazi Melissa Philippe an Ethiopian Jewish Nassau County legislator, to run in the special election to replace George Santos, who was expelled after he was exposed for alleged fraud and lies, including that he was Jewish. Philippe emerged as a likely contender to replace Santos when his lies were exposed soon after his election last year, and she was officially named Thursday as the candidate, nearly two weeks after Santos' expulsion. She will face Democrat Tom Suozzi, who is hoping to get his old job back after quitting the seat in an unsuccessful bid for governor. The special election is February 13. Philippe, 44, is an Orthodox Jewish mother of seven who served as a paratrooper in the Israeli army and campaigned in Israel for better representation of Ethiopian Jews. She has also taken a prominent role in campaigning against the spike in anti-Semitism in New York since Hamas terrorists massacred 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th, launching Israel's current war in Gaza. Philippe was 12 during Operation Solomon, the 1991 airlift that brought Ethiopian Jews to Israel. After a stint in the paratroop division of the army, she studied occupational therapy and diplomacy at Israeli universities, where she met her Ukrainian-American husband, who was then a medical student. In Israel, she led the Ethiopian Student Union for two years. 
I was the voice of so many young kids who wanted equal opportunity, and really my main focus was especially education, because I do believe through education you can achieve a lot, and you can integrate into the society, she told JTA in January. Philippe ran for her seat on the Nassau County Legislature in 2021, in part because of the anti-Semitism she said her son faced in middle school. She ousted a Democrat to win her spot in 2021 after asking Jewish supporters to put her over Shabbat, put her up over Shabbat, so she could visit synagogues. She was handily re-elected last month. Philippe was among a broad swath of Long Island Republicans who denounced Santos and called on him to resign as soon as his deceptions were revealed. I trusted him, and I told people to vote for him. I campaigned with him. And so when you do something like this and then keep every day there's something new coming about him, she told JTA, it's making you feel uncomfortable because people asking, you know, what's going on, Mozzie? What happened with this guy? Next from JTA, seven men, some members of Hamas, are arrested as European police foil plots against Jews by Gabe Friedman. Police in, the th- in three European countries arrested seven men they said were planning terror attacks against Jews and Jewish sites on Thursday. Some of the men arrested were longtime Hamas members who began building a weapons cache in Berlin after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, according to German officials. Three of the suspects were arrested in Germany, while one was arrested in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Police in Denmark arrested three other men, with Danish Prime Minister Meta Frederiksen saying the threat was as serious as it gets. German officials described the suspects as long-standing members of Hamas, who have participated in Hamas operations abroad. Hamas is considered a banned terror group across the European Union. The men arrested by Germany were accused of building a weapons cache in Berlin starting in October. The Guardian reported that the suspects have ties to Khalil Hamid al-Kharaz, the former second-in-command of Hamas's military wing, who was killed by Israeli bombing in Lebanon last month. It is, of course, in relation to Israel and Gaza, completely unacceptable for someone to bring a conflict elsewhere into the world into Danish society, Fredriksen said at an EU meeting in Brussels. Danish police said they would increase security for the near future at Jewish sites. Shortly after October 7th, Hamas officials stirred global panic after urging action in cities everywhere. But even as countries around the world have dealt with threats to Jewish institutions since October 7th, most arrests have been described as lone wolf cases, such as this week's arrest of an Austrian teenager plotting to attack a Vienna synagogue. Watchdogs have reported that anti-Semitic incidents have surged more than 300% in Germany and more than 800% in the Netherlands since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's intelligence agencies, Mossad and Shin Bet, jointly commended Danish police for their work. Their statement said police in Denmark had apprehended seven suspects, suggesting that the investigation that netted the German and Dutch arrests might have originated in Denmark. The Hamas terrorist organization has been working relentlessly and exhaustively to expand its lethal operations to Europe and thereby constitute a threat to the domestic security of these countries, the agencies said.
The Mossad and the uh, ISA will continue to combine forces and capabilities with their partners in the country and around the world in order to thwart Hamas's intentions and eliminate its capability. Next from JTA, FBI arrests California minor for role in synagogue swatting ring by Jacob Gervis. The FBI announced the arrest of a minor who will be charged for two online swatting hoaxes perpetrated against synagogues in Orange County, California. The suspect, whose name was not released because they are a minor, was arrested Tuesday morning by FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force in partnership with local law enforcement in Southern California and New York, as well as the Anti-Defamation League. The individual will be charged at the state level by the Orange County District Attorney for swatting attempts at synagogues in Tustin and Fullerton, California. The suspect is believed to be a member of a swatting ring that carried out false bomb threats and swatting attempts at a number of Jewish institutions, including at least 25 synagogues in 13 states during July and August, according to the FBI. The wave of attacks unnerved Jewish communities around the country over the summer and led to beefed-up security at many synagogues for the High Holy Days. Several communities reported interruptions during Rosh Hashanah. Temple Beth Tikva, a Reformed congregation in Fullerton, evacuated during Shabbat services in August after receiving an anonymous phone-in bomb threat. The synagogue's Facebook live stream captured the moment that the threat made its way to the prayer leaders as the rabbi interrupts the cantor and says, I'm afraid that we need to stop and leave the building right now. The FBI said it had identified the individual believed to have created the online server that hosted the alleged swatting network. The server has been taken offline, but it had included members who had expressed extremist views, including the glorification of highly publicized mass killers, according to the FBI. A 33-year-old man in Peru was arrested in September in connection with recent bomb threats, including some of those made against synagogues on Rosh Hashanah. And in Canton, Ohio, a 13-year-old is facing trial this week for allegedly planting, uh, planning a mass shooting at a synagogue. And we'll go to that story right now. It's published by uh, the USA Today Network. 13-year-old accused of plotting mass shooting at Temple Israel Synagogue in Canton, Ohio. A 13-year-old is accused of planning a mass shooting at Temple Israel Synagogue in Canton. The teen faces juvenile counts of inducing panic and disorderly conduct both misdemeanors after the threat was discovered around September 1st, according to court records. The suspect did create a detailed plan to complete a mass shooting at the Canton, Ohio Synagogue on Discord, an online platform for group chats, court filing said. The threat was reported to law enforcement and multiple public agencies were notified, including the school system, causing significant public alarm within those agencies, the document said. The boys' trial is set for December 20th in Stark County Family Court. The Stark County Sheriff's Office investigated. Rabbi David Komorowski of Temple Israel declined to comment because the incident involves a child. Anti-Semitic hate crimes rose 25% from 2021 to 2022, according to the most recent FBI statistics. 
Although Jewish people make up only 2.4% of the U.S. population, they are the targets of more than half of all reported religion-based hate crimes. Since October 7th, the Anti-Defamation League, an advocacy group that frequently speaks out against anti-Semitism and extremism, has tracked 832 anti-Jewish acts in the United States. And now we go back over to Jewish Insider. In California's public schools, ethnic studies becomes a flashpoint. By Gabby Deutsch. Weeks into the Israel-Hamas war, an Oakland, California City Council meeting went viral as local residents stepped up to the lectern and spread outlandish anti-Semitic lies about the October 7th Hamas terror attacks in Israel. The notion that this was a massacre of Jews is a fabricated narrative, one speaker said. Another said that calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous and racist. Several spread the falsehood that Israel had murdered their own people on October 7th. The, Oakwood City, uh, the Oakland City Council was considering calling for a ceasefire and a resolution that the Bay Area Jewish Community Relations Council called inflammatory and anti-Israel. But this meeting was far from the first time that anti-Israel and anti-Semitic ideas had appeared in Oakland since October 7th. Often, the rhetoric mirrored what's being taught in some of the area's public schools. It's part of a broader trend of educators bringing current events into the classroom, and in this case, teaching one-sided depictions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to children as young as six. The issue extends beyond Oakland to Southern California, where a city in Orange County has also adopted a school curriculum that Jewish leaders view as anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. The Bay Area has become the epicenter of radical activity. Last week, an unauthorized teach-in at Oakland Public Schools featured dozens of teachers incorporating the conflict in Gaza into their curricula. An elementary school teacher used a workbook that described a Palestinian child being removed from his home by a group of bullies called Zionists, according to local publication The Oakland Side. One resource used in a high school classroom introduced Hamas under a section called Attempts to Free Palestine. The school board condemned the teach-in, but the representative council of the Oakland Education Association, the local teachers union, endorsed it. The council also voted in November to call for a ceasefire. Meanwhile, a resource compiled by OEA regarding Palestine liberation said the body is not taking a position on Hamas because Hamas is complicated. This week, the Oakland Unified School District canceled a planned school board meeting where the body would have considered a ceasefire resolution at the last minute out of apparent safety concerns. The local fight is a beast. It is an absolute beast. It's extremely difficult and challenging, said Sarah Levin, executive director of Jimena, Jews indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. Levin and other Jewish community advocates in California described a fraught atmosphere for Jewish students in the week since October 7th. It's one that they have long feared and tried hard to avoid after California passed an ethnic studies requirement in the state's public high schools following years of activism 
from left-wing groups. What we've been concerned about since 2019 is that some ethnic studies activists have been insistent on incorporating anti-Zionist and, in some cases, explicitly anti-Semitic content in curricula, said David Bokarsley, executive director of the Jewish Public Affairs Committee of California, a coalition of Jewish communal organizations throughout the state. According to U.S. News and World Report, which ranks American universities, ethnic studies is an interdisciplinary field that examines the culture, history, and experiences of different racial and ethnic groups in the United States, particularly people of color and other historically marginalized groups. California is one of 18 states to mandate some form of ethnic studies education in public schools, although most do not go as far as California. When the state was first considering making a semester of ethnic studies a mandatory graduation requirement, the original draft curriculum faced strong pushback from California's Jewish community for its hostility toward Israel and support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. It also did not include education about anti-Semitism. A coalition of Jewish activists then worked with legislators, uh, with legislators to draft a model curriculum that was more inclusive and which was signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat. This is the debate that has been going on for years now. Do we fight this outright, or do we find a way to fight it from within to protect our students, asked Levin, who was one of the most prominent voices in the push to include more Jewish representation in the model ethnic studies curriculum. We're not going to rebuild a separate Jewish bubble here in California, even though some people probably would like to tell us to do that. No, this is our state too. We have to make it better. But a group of far-left ethnic studies educators and academics began to shop the earlier anti-Israel version of the curriculum to school districts after the model curriculum was signed into law in 2021, and in fact, even while it was still being drafted. Some of those initial authors went around and started shepherding their own curriculum called the Liberated Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum to different school districts. It did include anti-Zionist content in it, so we have been trying to ensure that school districts don't harm the Jewish community while implementing an ethnic studies curriculum that is meant to reduce harm for other communities, said Bokarsley. California has more than 900 school districts and thousands of schools. Each makes its own curriculum decisions. The state cannot mandate that each district and each school use its model curriculum. But the law signed by Newsom prohibits the teaching of biased or discriminatory content. In August, after a campaign by Jewish advocates, the California State Board of Education wrote to schools and cautioned them against using ethnic studies courses that promote bias and bigotry. The letter did not explicitly mention anti-Semitism, and the state has not sent any further communications on the issue since October 7th. Other states have responded more strongly. On Thursday, Virginia Attorney General Jason Miaris wrote to district superintendents across Virginia to alert them to rising anti-Semitism in K-12 schools and calling on them to do more. We don't have a legislation problem in California. We have an enforcement problem, said Tyler Gregory, CEO of the Bay Area JCRC. That's really where the community is feeling let down right now, 
and where we are pressing harder on those departments to crack the whip. A spokesperson for Newsom declined to comment, and Jewish Insider did not receive a response to a request for comment sent to the State Department of Education. State Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel, co-chair of the California Legislative Jewish Caucus, told J.I. that he is considering legislation to address the matter when the, legislature, when the legislature is in session next month. We're deeply concerned about the horrific anti-Semitic and anti-Israel propaganda that we've seen pop up in a number of districts across the state, said Gabriel, a Democrat. Unfortunately, there are some folks with really extreme views who see our public education system as a convenient way to spread hate and misinformation. This is a serious challenge for our community, and one that we should not underestimate. Since October 7th, some of the strongest advocates of ethnic studies education in California have revealed an extreme anti-Israel bias and downplayed the Hamas terror attacks in Israel. On October 8th, the Instagram account of the Coalition for Liberated Ethnic Studies reposted a graphic that said, Long Live Palestinian Resistance, with a photo of a man holding a Palestinian flag on top of a tank. The University of California Ethnic Studies Faculty Council and Alliance of Ethnic Studies educators across the UC system wrote the university's Board of Regents a letter on October 16th decrying statements by the university's administration that distort and misrepresent the unfolding genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and thereby contribute to the racist and dehumanizing erasure of Palestinian daily reality. The Faculty Council wrote that to hold the oppressed accountable for terrorism reinscribes a colonial narrative that seeks to have the world believe that history began on October 7, 2023. The letter did not mention Hamas. Most school districts in California are not teaching the so-called liberated ethnic studies curriculum or others that promote anti-Semitism, but since October 7th, the ones who support that worldview have become much more vocal. I still think most districts are complying. I think the difference is everyone is just much more on edge, and both sides of the issue are more energized to do something about it, said Gregory. In San Francisco, the district's teachers' union voted in November to demand an immediate ceasefire and an end to U.S. aid to Israel. The Arab Resource and Organizing Center, a local advocacy organization, organized a walkout for Gaza in Bay Area public schools on October 18 that accused Israel of committing genocide and called on teachers to break the silence on Palestine at our schools. The San Francisco Unified School District contracts AROC to provide some cultural education. Their agreement has come under scrutiny from San Francisco University SD parents due to the group's uh, San Francisco Unified Schools District parents due to the group's ties to the walkout, and it is now under investigation by the district. AROC has in recent weeks targeted Jewish leaders who speak out against anti-Semitism perpetrated by far-left activists. This is a subset of activists that have made explicit since October 7th what we've known all along. They have a problematic anti-Zionist bias and are intent on trying to incorporate that into high school lesson plans, Bokarsley said of the liberated ethnic studies proponents. The trend isn't just manifesting in the Bay Area. 
Jewish students are experiencing bullying and anti-Semitic comments in schools across Orange County as a result of Hamas's brutal attack on Israel, said Eric Ludwig, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Orange County. Teachers and school administrators need to do a better job of checking their bias when they teach about Jews and Israel. Santa Ana, the county seat, has embraced an ethnic studies curriculum that Jewish advocates view as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. A cadre of Jewish groups, the Anti-Defamation League, the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, the American Jewish Committee, and Potomac Law Group filed a lawsuit against Santa Ana's school district in September, alleging that the Southern California School Board violated transparency laws in its implementation of the curriculum. The state's largest city is not facing the same kind of hostility toward Israel that is widespread in the Bay Area. The result is that in Los Angeles, Jewish leaders and educators are thinking more proactively about how to incorporate nuanced factual education about the Middle East into high school classrooms. L.A., though, is not without incident. A charter school located at a synagogue in Valley Village sparked scrutiny after it asked the synagogue to remove an Israeli flag and was forced to fire a first-grade teacher who taught six-year-olds about the genocide of Palestine. Most of the Jewish elected leadership in the state and locally here, we support the idea of ethnic studies and have always just objected to the exclusion of the Jewish experience, said Nick Melvin, a member of the Los Angeles United School District School Board who is running for the congressional seat being vacated by Representative Adam Schipf, Democrat of California. LAUSD's Teachers Union, unlike its Bay Area counterparts, has not passed a resolution related to the Israel-Hamas conflict. The union considered a pro-BDS resolution in 2021, but ultimately voted it down. A small number of Jewish parents have removed their children from the Bay Area public schools in recent years. But most are staying, and Jewish parents in the Bay Area are engaging on these issues in a new way, according to Jim and his Levin, who has two children in public school in Marin County. This is all happening because of concerned parents who are committed to our school system, said Levin. Even within the last couple of weeks, I'm seeing parents kind of self-select certain parents in the community to run for school boards and to get engaged and go to DEI meetings, even to get engaged at the county level. Still, the issue is not confined to California, even if that's where it is playing out in its most extreme form. This is a trend. Several far-left anti-Israel organizations, most notably Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace, have their roots in the Bay Area. The Minneapolis Teachers Union endorsed a statement calling for a ceasefire and a boycott of Israel, but they walked it back after facing pushback from Jewish families. No one should be surprised that in blue cities they're going to see something like this, said Gregory. We've been so hyper-focused on the college and university level issues, and rightly so. But I think this in the long run could be much more damaging if we don't head it off now. And next from Jewish Insider... Survey of Jewish students shows anti-Semitism varies greatly campus to campus by Haley Cohen. When researchers at Brandeis University set out in 2016 to measure anti-Semitism on college campuses across the country, 
they found a small number of hotspots schools where Jewish students faced a hostile environment. Now, in a new survey in the wake of October 7th and the ensuing war between Israel and Hamas, that same team of researchers has found many more hotspots, including top universities such as Columbia, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and the University of California, Berkeley, where hostility toward both Jews and Israel is increasing dramatically. Yet the study, in the shadow of war, hotspots of anti-Semitism on U.S. college campuses, found that at a number of other schools, including Duke, Washington University in St. Louis, Tulane, and the University of Florida, Jewish students report far lower, though still significant, levels of anti-Semitic hostility. The study, which according to its authors is the first to identify levels of anti-Semitism at specific campuses and to compare campus levels of anti-Semitism since October 7th, was conducted by the Maurice and Marilyn Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies at Brandeis University and released Thursday evening. There's no question that after October 7th, there has been a dramatic increase in the level of anti-Semitism on campuses. Leonard Sachs, one of the study's authors and a Brandeis professor of contemporary Jewish studies and social policy, who heads the Steinhardt Social Research Institute and the Cohen Center, told Jewish Insider. But one of the most important takeaways of this study is that there's a huge amount of variance among campuses. Not all campuses have the high rates of anti-Semitism that are perceived on the campuses in that top quartile. The 31-page study describes Jewish students' perceptions of anti-Semitism on 51 U.S. college campuses, 19 private and 32 public colleges and universities since the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel. It was based on survey data collected from nearly 2,000 Jewish undergraduate students at schools with large Jewish student populations. The sample consisted of U.S. applicants to the Birthright Israel program who were undergraduates at one of the 51 schools during the 2023-24 academic year. The campuses were selected based on the number of birthright applicants who were likely to be undergraduate students at these schools in the 23-24 academic year. Students were, question, uh, were questioned based on an index of hostility, which included three questions. The extent to which they agreed there was a hostile environment toward Jews at their school. The extent to which they agreed there was a hostile environment toward Israel at their school and their concern, their level of concern about anti-Semitism on their campus. The research built on the 2016 study by the same team that found that anti-Semitism on campus was concentrated at a small number of hotspot schools, including public universities such as City University of New York, Brooklyn, and several University of California campuses, and private universities such as Northwestern and Boston University. Most, but not all, of the schools included in the 2016 study were used in the new one as well. The overall hostility level compared to 2016 was much larger, Sachs told J.I. When we did the study in 2016, it wasn't in the midst of a hot war. The new study found that schools with the biggest quartile of reported anti-Semitic hostility were Boston University, Columbia University, the George Washington University, New York University, the Ohio State University, Queens College, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, 
University of California, San Diego, University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, and University of Wisconsin. At these schools, 85% of respondents agreed at least somewhat that there was a hostile environment toward Jews at their school, with 23% strongly agreeing. Nearly all respondents at these schools, 94%, agreed that there was a hostile environment toward Israel at their school, with half strongly agreeing, at 57% saying they were concerned uh, they were very concerned about anti-Semitism on their campus. The study found that Jewish students at these schools were more likely to report experiencing insult or harassment in person and on social media, seeing anti-Semitic images, slogans, or graffiti, and being blamed for the actions of the Israeli government because they were Jewish. However, compared to the difference in overall perceptions of hostility, Significantly less variation between schools was found in regard to these incidents. The schools with the lowest reported quartile of anti-Semitic hostility were Brandeis University, California Polytechnic State University, Duke University, Florida Atlantic University, Florida State University, Pennsylvania State University, Tulane University, University of Central Florida, University of Colorado Boulder, University of Delaware, University of Florida, University of Miami, and Washington University. Sachs noted that overall he expected each school to rank as it did. But we do think the systematic data we're presenting gives a somewhat different impression of what's going on on college campuses than the most of the media are reporting, which has been focused on select elite Northeast schools. We show that there's a substantial number of schools in the hostile grouping that are public universities, he said. Across the board, anti-Semitic incidents don't necessarily predict how the environment is perceived to be. Sachs continued, pointing to Tulane, which ranked in the lowest quartile of perceived anti-Semitic hostility, despite dealing with a violent pro-Palestinian rally in October. That suggests that there are some things about these campuses about what the administration and faculty do that makes them safer places for Jewish students than others. Even at schools with the lowest levels of anti-Semitic hostility, almost half, 49% of respondents agreed at least somewhat that there was a hostile environment toward Jews at their school, although only 4% strongly agreed. 63% of Jews uh, of students at the school with the lowest level of anti-Semitic hostility also agreed at least somewhat that there was a hostile environment toward Israel at their school, while 23% were very much concerned about anti-Semitism on their campus. The research also found that at all schools, students were more concerned about anti-Semitism related to criticism of Israel than they were about anti-Semitism related to traditional anti-Jewish stereotypes. Concern about anti-Semitism related to criticism of Israel was not limited to those who, in the context of the war, had favorable views of the Israel government. Even among those who had unfavorable views of the Israeli government, 44% of all respondents, nearly half, 45, were very concerned about anti-Semitism related to criticism of Israel. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.